This is a mercy for the Watchers. Below Arthur, the soldiers in the River Clyde are still moving out. A short journey from darkness to light, from light to the darkness of death. Sometimes their officers need to urge them on, but mostly they go out without hesitation. Soon it will be Arthur's turn. If he lets go of the line of cello, it must be Bach. He will be able to hear again, for all the horror he sees is in dumb show, like a silent film with accompanying music. If he could think, which he can't, he would suspect that his deafness is not just a shocked refusal to hear the tortured and torturing sounds of death. The shrieks, the moans, the imploring sobs, he is close enough to hear it all. But the effect of the earlier shelling from the great battleships behind him, out of that magnificent but useless roaring which had demolished the fort, but little else, had emerged the cello. Arthur tightens his webbing and checks the pistol at his hip. Briefly he regrets that officers don't carry rifles with their sharp bayonets, as if that could save him. He must go below and find his men. It seems hard to die so young. Sylvia carried a basket chair onto the lawn. It was the first halfway decent spring day. At first she set it down under a tulip tree whose pale leaves were just uncurling, until, annoyed by the insistent cheeping of a blackbird, she picked it up again and marched it to the centre of the grass. But when she sat down, a wind, twisting through the pine trees on the edge of the lawn, blew sharp whips of hair against her face. It was enough to make her move again. What are you doing? Sylvia looked round as her sister, swinging a rather warped tennis racket, came out of the veranda doors behind her. Nothing, go away, Gussie. I intend to. Reggie is coming over to improve my backhand. Gussie made a sweeping motion with her racket and laughed. I don't know how you can be interested in dreary Reggie or... Dreary tennis, exclaimed Sylvia spitefully. Then, suddenly languid, she collapsed into the chair. It had been like this ever since Arthur had left in January. One minute she was filled with restless energy, the next with a lassitude so great it was a struggle to lift her head. Neither mood helped with her task, which was to study for the Lady Margaret Hall Oxford exam. Her failure was all the more dispiriting because it had been enormously difficult to get her parents' permission to take the exam. No woman in our family has ever been mistaken for a blue stocking, her mother had declared acidly. It was Arthur, clever, charming, now absent Arthur, who had done the persuading. I have always imagined an educated wife, he had told Sylvia's father over port one evening, although this was Arthur's own account of the conversation, so perhaps not to be trusted. Sylvia's brain has the potential to transform from jellyfish into dolphin, but only with the proper attention. Arthur was no catch in her mother's terms, but her father, a retired colonel who had fought in Africa and India, liked his quickness and determination. Since there was no son to receive the proper attention, his eldest daughter was allowed to take the spot, 
After all, as Arthur had also said to Sylvia's mother, women are not fully part of the university since most dons feel just like you. Then the war came and soon there was no Arthur as guide and inspiration. In a gesture of foolhardy pride she had chosen to read classics. The dreary Regis father, a scholarly vicar, taught her Greek. She had already taught herself Latin because whatever her mother said, she was clever as well as ambitious. If only Arthur had been in England, visiting with his university friends, and talking so hard that she could feel her mind sharpening and expanding. But Arthur's voice was confined to his letters. He had been writing often, describing the Sphinx by moonlight, but nothing since he had announced that his regiment was leaving Cairo. It had seemed a good thing since, even through a veil of...